I take your Bibles and turn in them to the book of Acts, and we're uh, continuing to work our way through this uh, book of the Bible, and uh, we'll certainly go through the summer and then maybe take a break in the fall. Haven't yet determined yet. Um, uh, still like to get back to the book of Jude and finish that off as well, but um, uh, for now, we're, we're just uh, settling in this book, and what a helpful and, and good book it is um, for us. And uh, this morning, we're in Acts, um, Acts chapter 12. And uh, just I'll read the text in, in just a moment, but you can find it there. If you're new and you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles underneath the seats in front of you, and you're welcome to, to use one of those Bibles. And if you don't own one, you can take it and make it part of your um, reading material throughout the week. Um, you know, sometimes we like life always to be sunny. We like things always to go well. We don't like there to be any sort of rifts in, in life and... Um, uh, sometimes we find that even in the church and in the gospel, that, um, you know, things are going along just wonderfully, and we think, well, this is great, I'm going to hang on to this for a while, and then a bump comes in the road. And as we've been going through the book of Luke, we've been finding that Luke has been describing to us just the incredible progress of the gospel, that as the gospel is going forth, and as the Holy Spirit is emboldening his servants to proclaim the good news of the gospel, there's a great response, and people are turning to Christ. We find great groups of people turning to Christ. For instance, uh, you know, in the end of Acts, we see that 3,000 in one day were added to the church. And we find that in Samaria. We find that in um, uh, Cornelius' household, that large groups of people are responding to the saving work of Christ. But we also see that the the gospel is also uh, high-hitting individuals. And I think sometimes we need to remember that. And so Luke is careful to describe a few of the conversions along the way. And we certainly are familiar with uh, the Ethiopian that was uh, converted on his way back to his home country um, in his chariot as they as they were chatting about the book of Isaiah. Uh, we find that also of uh, last uh, couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Cornelius from Caesarea and how he had been seeking God and, and God had answered his prayers finally and sent Peter to share the word of God with him. And what an amazing turnabout in his life we find. Uh, We also find the remarkable conversion of Saul. Saul, who was one of the chief persecutors of the church, and and, uh, God had just um, stopped him dead in his tracks on the way to Damascus and um, shone the light of Christ into his life, and uh, he received Christ. And so we see this amazing um, uh, um, push of the gospel, and the church is riding this wave of just great succession, and we're just on the sort of the edge of now the gospel going forth with full force into Turkey and Asia and spreading out. But we hit a glitch along the way. And it's a rather significant glitch as Luke begins to describe the setback for the church. And it's no different than what happens in our lives sometimes and even happens in our churches. You're going along and bam, you hit a little bit of a glitch along the way. And here the glitch is that um, James is beheaded. James is one of the chief apostles in the church, and, and this uh, execution brings great joy and delight to a certain amount of people. And so King Herod says, well, I think I'll get me another one of those apostles. And he arrests Peter, and he throws Peter in prison, and he's put him on death row. And um, we think here is two significant men of the church, two significant gifts that God has given to the church. One of them is already dead, and the other one is very close to being dead. And we think, what in the world is going on here? Why, after such smooth sailing, do we see such a significant roadblock? But I think it's helpful for us to understand that this is how the church expands. This is how life progresses. Sometimes there are good times. Sometimes there are bad times. 
Sometimes there's expansion, other times there's opposition. Sometimes there's growth, other times there's setbacks. Sometimes we advance, other times we retreat. But God will prevail. His church will succeed. As Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail. And so we need to begin to see the big picture of how God moves out across the world with the good news of the gospel. So we come to Acts chapter 12 and we're going to read about this glitch. And so you can follow along as I read the first 19 verses and um, get, a, get our bearings in this passage. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So, Father, we thank you for your word now that is before us again this morning. And as we gather together in this corporate body and we unite our hearts and minds around the word of God, I pray that uh, you would send your spirit to instruct us and to teach us and to warn us and to exhort us and to encourage us. May these words be beneficial to our needs today. May they prepare us for what's ahead of us in this week. May they remind us of your great glory and your great power. May they remind us of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have this new wave of persecution that's all of a sudden sweeping over the church. And Luke introduces this section to us by simply saying that about that time. 
It's a fairly vague reference, probably to the last 18 months or so, uh, that Luke has been describing in chapter 11 and, and even earlier with Cornelius. Because here the, the church is flourishing. But the problem is it's a Gentile church. It's not the pure church. The Gentiles are the outsiders. And there are some that are not happy about the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. And so as they're expressing their concerns to Herod, Herod says, well, I think I'll deal with this. And we read that he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This is Herod Agrippa I. This was the grandson of Herod the Great. This Herod would have known something about the way. He would have known something about the followers of Jesus Christ. He would have known something about what they believed and about the progress of the church. But Herod was a people pleaser. And it's a terrible thing to be a people pleaser. But on the one hand, he was trying to keep Rome happy. And in order to keep Rome happy, you had to keep peace in your particular dominion. And so one of the ways you kept peace was to make sure that you quashed any rebellion or any insurrection that was coming up from the groups of people that might be in the kingdom that you ruled over. On the other hand, he was also wanting to please the Jews. Because the Jews had power, they had political power. And so Herod was one who tried very carefully to be an observer of the law and the ways of the law. And so he was trying to please Rome. He was trying to please the Jews. And at the same time, the Gentiles were coming into the church. And they were coming into the Jewish faith. And some of the Jews did not like this. In fact, a little bit later, we'll find in Acts chapter 14 that the Jews in Antioch were pretty ticked off that the Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so Herod's response to all of this pressure was, well, I'll get one of their leading guys and we'll kill him. So he goes out and he arrests James and they behead him. They put him to the sword. What astounds me is the comment that follows that, that this pleased the Jews. It sort of is becoming more and more frustrating to me that we are somehow pleasured by the death of another human being. What sinfulness does that reveal in our depths of our hearts that we would find some kind of delight in the discomfort of another human being. And that bloodlust that is there in the human body runs in all of us, and some of us it runs deeper than others. We think to ourselves, well, we're certainly not like the Romans and the Greeks who had public exhibitions of the death of people, and whether it's Christians or slaves or others, they watched with great delight and great glee as those people were killed. But is it any different today when groups of men and women gather around the TVs or in the bars to watch UFC fighting, to watch incredible displays of aggression upon another human being? What is it in us that is attracted to that sort of behavior? You watch a crowd at a hockey game and a fight breaks out and that creates the greatest amount of clapping and standing in joy. What is it in us that is attracted to the hurting of one human being by another human being? What pleasure do we get from seeing that take place? How could the death of James bring such delight to the people? Jesus had warned both James and John, brothers nicknamed Sons of Thunder. I love that. Sons of Thunder. I would have liked to know them when they were teenagers. Well, maybe I wouldn't have. But they were sons of thunder, and he said to them that they would drink his cup, which was martyrdom and death, and they would share his baptism. And so Herod, riding this wave of popularity and riding this wave of bloodlust, decides, well, we'll get another one. 
and he runs out and he arrests Peter. It was during the Passover in the week of uh, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And it, it, during this particular time, it, the Jewish law forbade judicial proceedings and the execution of anyone. And so this execution would have to wait until the end of the week. But in the meantime, he had arranged for four squads of soldiers, four guards each, to look after Peter and to guard him in three-hour shifts. He hoped that he would be able to hang on to him to the end of the feast, and then he would go through a sham of a trial, and they would execute another one of the followers of Jesus Christ. He had a guard chained to either arm. He had guards placed at the gates, and he was going to ensure that Peter did not escape. From a human perspective, we say, wow, this is a bleak situation. From a human perspective, we say to ourselves, it looks like evil has prevailed once again. From a human perspective, we think, wow, this is an unfixable situation. What can we do to stand against such evil and such absolute power? Well, we find in verses 12 or chapter 12, verse 6, 6 to 11, this remarkable deliverance. And in verse 6, Luke intentionally describes the great lengths that Herod had gone through to ensure that Peter would not escape so that he could be brought to trial. And we think, well, this is a little bit of overkill. But what amazes me in the midst of all of this is Peter is fast asleep. And in fact, as we read, he's so soundly asleep that when the angel comes along, he's got to work hard at waking him up. And I think, what is it about Peter that is giving him such calm and such rest in this particular situation? Is he living in la-la land? Is he kind of, you know, thinking, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, I might as well go to sleep. Or is he thinking to himself, you know, I'm going to die anyhow, so I might as well get a good sleep before I die. Or is he resting confident in the plan and the power of God? I suspect it's probably closer to the latter, and I think he's imitating his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I wonder if as he was in that prison, he was maybe recalling that boat crossing that he and a number of his buddies and Jesus had made one day across the Sea of Galilee. As they were crossing the sea, the mother of all storms hit. They feared for their lives. And as they feared for their lives, they went looking for Jesus. And where did they find him? They found him asleep in the front of the boat. Matthew tells the story this way. Behold, there was a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by waves. But he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? I wonder if Peter had learnt that lesson. Why am I afraid? I serve the living God who controls the oceans and who controls the winds. Surely he controls the power of man. Then Jesus arose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was great calm. And men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? I suspect that Peter was asleep because of his confidence in God. And maybe he was singing a song that would be later written, What have I to fear? What have I to dread? Leaning on the everlasting arms. Suddenly we read that the angel of the Lord appears to them and the rest of the story for me, it's almost humorous. Because here comes this angel and he's got to prod and poke Peter to wake him up. He's in such a profound and a deep sleep. He says, get up, Peter. And Peter stands up and in the process of standing up, the chains on his hands fall off. And then he says to him, get up, get dressed, and uh, follow me, we're heading out of here. 
And as they start to walk through the first door, the sentries are asleep. And they walk through the second door and the sentry is asleep again. And as we realize, this is not anything new to God. That God is able to even put asleep those who are lightly sleeping. We find this written throughout a couple of the stories in the Old Testament as God delivers his people. And then as they come out of the first gate and they come out of the second gate, did you know what it said about, note what it said about the iron gate leading into the city? It opened of its own accord. God did it. God made that gate swing on its hinges to let them in. Loved ones, do you believe this? Do you believe that this is the power of God, the God that you love and the God that you serve? Do you believe that God's power is great enough to release you from physical bondage? Do you believe that God's power is able enough to, to, to render those around you in, in a stupor such that you can escape or be delivered? Do you believe that God's power is able to, 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 to move on objects, physical objects, without anybody touching them to make them serve His will? Beloved, even iron gates serve the will of our God. And so we see in this story this incredible power of God, this deliverance of God at work. I was reflecting on these things and deliverances and was thinking of a few different deliverances that are uh, illustrated in this passage. First of all, this lesson about deliverance, that Peter's deliverance came at the 11th hour. I think this is something most of us here are familiar with. We've walked with God for any length of time. You know, we, we get into a situation and we find ourselves troubled by the circumstances that we're in. We say, God, act now. Come on, God, you got to fix this. Come on, God, I've been in this long enough. Would you get me out of here? And as you know, and as I know, that sometimes that day goes into a week, and that week goes into a month, and that month goes into a year, and that year goes into ten years. And there are times at which God's deliverance seems to never come. But here we find out that God's deliverance finally came the night before he was to be executed. I think, beloved, it's because God wants us to learn to trust him sometimes. I think it's sometimes that God knows the beginning from the end. And so he says, you know, you have not learned all that you need to learn. Or I've not done what I need to do in the lives of the people around you yet. And so be steady, be patient, wait, be still. At the right time, I will deliver you. That is my promise. That is my word. And yet we still wrestle with God in our difficult times. Loved ones, don't get ahead of God. Learn to wait. Learn to rest. Learn to sleep, even, in your difficult circumstances. And entrust yourself to God, who is able to deliver you at the 11th hour. The second thing that I realized about um, deliverances in this passage is, is the reality of death that pervades in this chapter. And I know that's a little dark, and I know it's a little morbid, but, you know, if, if, if we don't talk openly and honestly about death here, then there's little chance that we're going to talk about death anywhere. If you read this chapter from beginning to end, you will find out that there are three references to death. We find James beheaded. We find a group of soldiers executed. And we find a king who is eaten from the inside out by worms. And we find Peter who escapes death. If we stop to think about it, Death doesn't make a whole lot of sense. These past weeks, even, as we've reflected on the news around certainly Canada and in the States, we have realized that there's an apparent arbitrariness to death. 
In a theater, we have a six-year-old girl, a 27-year-old young man on the verge of his first anniversary. We have men. We have women. In the interior, we have an 11-year-old boy at a Christian camp killed as a tree is blown over in the wind. Can you explain this to me? See, we see the same thing at play in this chapter. We have all these different deaths, and there's really no apparent explanation to them. James dies at the hands of a king who is full of bloodlust. The soldiers die because of a law which says that anybody who escapes under their watch, they will suffer the same sentence. But ultimately, they die because God delivered Peter from jail. We have Herod who dies because of a direct judgment of God. And then we have Peter, who in the middle of this is spared. And we say, well, why was James beheaded and Peter spared? Why were not both of them spared? Why does God allow one to be executed and deliver the other? What is the purpose behind all of this? And again, I don't have the answers to the whys. But the longer I live and the more I walk with God, the greater is my confidence that ultimately life and death are in the hands of God. As I reflect on this, I think of the book of Job and at the end of the terrible circumstances of his life. As Job comes before God, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Loved ones, that is our confidence in death. At the end of John's gospel, we have a dialogue between Peter and Jesus. And Jesus and Peter, or Jesus had told Peter that he was going to die a martyr's death. To which um, uh, Peter's retort was, well, what about this man? Pointing to John. And I love that, you know. It's just typical us. Well, fine, I'm going to die, but how is he going to die? And Jesus replies to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. And in life, so in death, we submit ourselves to the sovereign hand of God. Because ultimately, life and death are also in the hands of God. And I'm okay with this. I'm okay with sometimes the questioning because I know God. And I'm getting to know Him better, that He is holy and righteous and just and compassionate and gracious and merciful. He knows the beginning from the end. He never makes a mistake. So we have to face our mortality and the mortality of others. And yes, there often appears to be no logic in death. I expect that because death is an enemy. There is no logic in hostility. There is no logic in enmity. Death is a thief. It comes and steals from us what we most love at the times that we least expect it. And so there is no logic in death. But here are a few things that I ponder as I think about death. One, it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Beloved, none of us here is immortal in a physical sense. If you're a Christian, you are immortal, but we will all die. That's an appointment that we have to keep set by God. In the psalm, psalm uh, I believe it's Psalm uh, 70, the psalmist reminds us that man's normal lifespan is three score and ten. Do you know how many years that is? Seventy. So all of you over 70 are living on Extra time. (laughs) That's happy news, isn't it? You'll you'll be back next week. I want to come back here this guy again. (laughs) But that's what what the Bible is trying to say to us in that passage is, 
you need to come to grips with your mortality. You need to come to grips with the fact that life will not go on forever and ever and ever in this physical state. In another psalm, the psalmist reminds us that every single one of our days are numbered before there were yet one of them. They are written down in the book of God. So from that perspective, beloved, there is no accident in God's eyes. Because God has determined the number of our days before we've ever lived one. Whether it's two weeks after conception, whether it's five years after birth, whether it's 48 years, whether it's 103 years, God has numbered every one of those days. And that's why the scripture tells us, and Moses helps us in this way, he says, Lord, teach me to number my days. In other words, teach me to live with the reality that I am mortal. Teach me to live with the understanding that this day could be my last day. Teach me not to take every day for advantage or take advantage of every day and assume that I'm going to have another 20, 30, 50, 100 days. Teach me to number my days. Rarely are we ever given the answer why in the face of death. But I do know this, that we ought not fear it. And we don't need to fear it as God's children. We don't need to fear death because death has been defeated in Christ Jesus. Death entered the world because of sin. And the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of, short of the glory of God. Therefore, all of us will die. But Christ has defeated death. He has broken the power of death. He has paid the penalty for our sins. We do not have to fear that death will grip us and hold us forever and ever. If you trust in Christ, you too then will not need to fear death. You can be like Peter, sleep soundly with each day that God gives you, knowing that your days are in God's hands. The third thing that I see illustrated here about deliverance is, is it's an illustration of spiritual deliverance. Do you know that, that, that I think one of the things we need to learn to do in the Bible is to look at physical things because they all often illustrate spiritual truths. And so here we have this physical reality of Peter's situation. His case was hopeless. He was in prison. He was chained to a guard on either side of him with two more guards standing at the exits. And he was sla- sound asleep. In fact, he was all but contemned to die. And we see him sleeping soundly in the face of certain death. Do you know that that is the spiritual reality of every single one of us before we come to faith in Jesus Christ? It is a picture of man and woman in their sinful condition. Because sin holds us in our grip. Sin has us chained. Sin has us captive. Sin has us enslaved. And added to that reality is the fact that we are ignorant of the ultimate reason behind our death. And we are ignorant of what stands on the other side of death which is separation from God and eternity spent in hell. And if the truth were told that before we came to Christ, we were asleep as that certain death inched closer and closer towards us. Ephesians tells us we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. Before we are in Christ, we are the walking dead. But this passage here illustrates the power of God to shine the light of Christ into our life, to release us from the grip that sin holds on us and to deliver us from the chains that hold us down and to release us from prison and enter us into everlasting life. Beloved, this is a beautiful picture of the deliverance that God provides for you and I through Christ Jesus.
we move on a little bit in the text and we come to verses 12 to 19 and we see Peter free at last. He's free from the chains. He's free from the bondage of the prison. He's free from the escort of the angel. And he thinks to himself, well, now where do I go? Here I am in the middle of the night. I'm free. I'm in the back in the city. And um, surely Herod's men are going to come looking for me as soon as they find out that I'm missing. So he goes to the house of Mary. I think this is likely a familiar gathering spot for the church in Jerusalem at this particular time. It's probably the place that they had been praying when the Holy Spirit fell on them, when the 120 of them were gathered in that upper room. I don't know if Peter knew how much the church had been praying for him while he was in prison. But we do know that when he learned that he, that they had, or when the church learned that he had been in prison, they took up earnest prayer on his behalf. We know that Peter didn't stay there long. He needed to get out of the city. So he slipped into the wee hours of the morning. He told them the miraculous story of his deliverance. And then he left the scene. I want us to just spend the last minutes that we have together reflecting on verse 5 for a moment. And in fact, the last part of verse 5. But earnest prayer was being made for him to God by the church. Just some observations about prayer. The first observation about prayer that I make from this text is the context of prayer. Prayer takes place in the midst of a war of the worlds. You read that whole verse 5 and it said, So Peter was in prison, but earnest prayer was being made by for him to God by the church. There we have the reality of prayer. We have the world and we have God. We have the power of man and we have the power of God. We have two colliding worldviews taking place. We have the destructive power of Herod bent on killing another one of God's children. And we have the saving power of God being called upon through the power of prayer. We have two communities at war. We have the world that is warring against the church, each wielding their appropriate weapons. On the one hand, there is the world, and they are oblivious to God. They are oblivious to his power. They are oblivious to his might. And we see that in Herod. Herod is ruling. Herod is pleasing the people. Herod is attacking the church. Herod is abusing his power over life and death by virtue of his position. And behind such a man, and behind such evil and behind the world is the evil one himself if you remember when jesus was tempted in the wilderness he was taken up by satan to a high place and the devil took him up there and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of the time and he said to him to you i will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and i will give it to whom i will john writing in another place says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one Beloved, behind all the physical power and the materialism and all the authority that we see around us is the power of the evil one bent on the destruction of God's creation and of God's people and of God's church. On the other hand, we have the kingdom of God. And here we have the rule of God and the illustration of God's power. And we saw that as we sang this morning and illustrated from Isaiah chapter 40 about God's power, God's knowledge, God's might, God's rule, God's authority. And we have that power at work. And sometimes we think, well, the might of God seems so insignificant in the face of sheer power and money and influence. But prayer reminds us that there is a greater power at work in this world. Herod had Peter in prison, but the church was praying. If our only weapon is prayer, it is enough to stop the progress of evil and bring change in our circumstances.
So, beloved, when you go to prayer every day, you are entering into a battle, a war of the worlds. The second thing that I see is it teaches us a number of things about the nature of prayer. Four important realities. The first is simply this, that the believers engaged in earnest prayer. I've been troubled and challenged and convicted about my own prayer life for the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing this particular message. It's difficult to know exactly how long the church had been praying. It's likely that Peter was arrested sometime during the Passover, if not at the very beginning, and would have been kept then in prison for up to six and a half, seven days. For that time, the church was praying. It's also important to notice that Peter was rescued at night. And he went to the house of Mary, and what did he find? He found the church praying. Jerusalem was asleep. The church was praying. And it wasn't just any kind of prayer. It's the same uh, language that's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in earnest agony. They were pleading before the throne of God. We find references dotted throughout the scripture about the nature of prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Loved ones, do you not think we all have a bit to learn about the earnestness of praying? Second thing that we learn is that these believers were praying specifically. Earnest prayer was being made for him. What are you asking God for today? Are you being specific? Or are you hedging your bets by keeping your request broad? You know, I wonder sometimes if, if it, we do this because we really don't know what we want or because we really don't think God is able to answer the specific quest that we have or we're afraid to ask specifically because God just might not answer us specifically. But loved ones, if God is able to give us the desires of my heart or our hearts, should we not express the desires of our heart to him in prayer? How will we know that God has answered our prayers if we're unable to answer, recognize the answer when it comes to us? If our prayers are so broad, we'll never really know if it was God that answered our prayer or if it was just circumstances, although God's behind the circumstances. I think you know what I'm saying there, though. This account is interesting to me also because when Peter comes to the door, the people are amazed and astonished. They were praying for him, but then they're shocked when he comes to the door. So to me, it seems to say that their praying for him was broad, not specific. And in fact, when Peter prays up and shows up at the door, Rhoda goes saying, Peter's here, Peter's here. And the response is, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. And she keeps insisting and they keep saying, no, no, it's just his spirit. You think, what's going on there? What were they praying for? I wonder if maybe their praying was not very specific. And maybe it wasn't big enough. Maybe they were praying for Peter, but they weren't praying specifically that Peter would be delivered from the hands of Herod. Maybe they were thinking that, that, well, I don't know God, maybe if you can deliver him, but I know you can give him calm and comfort as he's about to die. And, and God, I know you can maybe give him a deep sleep, so maybe they were praying that Peter would also sleep. You know, maybe they were hoping that the trial would be a quick one and that he would die quickly. I don't know, but it doesn't seem that they were praying specifically that God would actually deliver him from the power of Herod. I have a couple of books on my shelf which are sermons by Spurgeon on prayer, and there's one in particular that I've read a number of times, and I was reflecting on it again this week, and I just want to share a small bit of it with you this morning. He begins by quoting a hymn, 
Thou art coming to a king, large petitions to him bring. We do not come, as it were, in prayer only to God's almary. And by almary, they had places where they distributed alms to the poor, as we might call it our benevolent committee. So he says, we do not come, as it were, in prayer only to God's almary, where he dispenses his favors to the poor. Nor do we come to the back door of the house of mercy to receive the broken scraps, though that were more than we deserve. Or to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table is more than we could claim. But when we pray, we are standing in the palace on the glittering floor of the great king's own reception room. And thus we are placed upon a vantage ground. In prayer we stand where angels bow with veiled faces. There, even there, the cherubim and the seraphim adore before that self-same throne to which our prayers ascend. Shall we come there with stunted and narrow and contracted faith? Nay, it becomes not the king to be giving away pence and groats. He distributes pieces of broad gold. He scatters, not as a poor man must, scraps of bread and broken meat. But he makes a feast of fat things, of fat things full of marrow and wines of lees well refined. When Alexander's soldier was told to ask him what he would, he did not ask stingily after the nature of his own merits, but he made such a heavy demand that the royal treasurer refused to pay it. And he put the case to Alexander. And Alexander, in right kingly sort, replied, He knows how great Alexander is. And he he has asked as from a king, Let him have what he requests. Take heed of imagining that God's thoughts are as thy thoughts, and his ways are as thy ways. Do not bring before God stinted petitions and narrow desires, and say, Lord, do according to these. Remember, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so higher his ways above yours and his thoughts above your thoughts. And ask, therefore, after a godlike sort. Ask for great things. For you are before the throne of grace, and he will do for us exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think or imagine. Has your praying this week been characterized by asking things of a godlike sort? Have you been asking big things of God? Have you been asking things that befit the God of this universe? I think, beloved, that we need to learn to pray more specifically. And we need to learn to pray bigger things. God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. So ask big. Imagine large. And see God blow that to bits. The next thing that we see in this particular passage of Scripture, the believers were praying to God. They were praying to God. This matters. And I just say these things quickly, and we're, we're getting near the end. Just two points, and they'll go quickly. This is the way of prayer. When Jesus, his disciples, came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, what did he say to them? This is how you ought to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Beloved, prayer is directed to God and to God alone. And one of the things that we learn in Scripture is that although there are occasions when we pray to Jesus and when we pray to the Holy Spirit, normally and generally, Scripture in, in, in Scripture, or prayer in Scripture, is addressed to God the Father. It's through Jesus Christ or in the name of Jesus Christ By the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the pattern of prayer. That is the way we pray. And I think it's important that when we pray to God, it's not a God of our own making. It's not a God of our own choosing. Many think that they are, the God that they are praying to is, is the God that hears their prayers, but He's not the God of the Bible. 
When we pray, beloved, we pray to the God of the Bible. Many offer prayers through other mediators, but that is not praying to God through Christ. We come to God only in the name of Jesus Christ. Only Jesus takes our prayers before the throne of grace. And do you know that it's possible for us to pray to an audience and not to ourselves? Do you know that sometimes even I have found myself as I'm praying, thinking, God, I hope they are impressed with this prayer. You laugh, I do. And I chastise myself. Because I'm not praying to you. I'm praying to God. And we need to learn in our prayers. We're not praying to impress people. Our kids, our spouse, our wives, our congregation. We pray to speak to God. Finally, the believers were praying together. Earnest prayer was being made by, or to God by the church. Here's a final lesson in the nature of prayer that we need to regain. We read here that the church came together to pray. They were united by a single need. They all met together to prayer, to pray. What value there, there, there is in this? There's something that happens when the church gathers together, when the church is on the same page, when the church is focused on the same issue, calling out to God. I remember those days as a young young boy growing up in Pentecostal churches. And if any of you are, are from a Pentecostal background, you remember tarrying meetings. And they, we would pray and pray and pray. And, you know, as a little kid, I'd be falling asleep, but I'd also be wanting to stay awake because amazing things happened during those tarrying meetings. But the church would gather together and they'd pray for three, four, five hours into the wee hours of the morning. I have become increasingly convinced here that I have failed to lead properly in this area of corporate prayer as a church. And I trust that in the days ahead when we come up with specific needs and with issues that are of such gravity that it requires that the church gather together to pray, that when the call goes out, we will gather together as one body, cry out to God as his people, and say, God, help us. And so from this passage, then, we learn that God answers prayer. We learn some of the lessons of the nature of prayer. Is our prayer earnest? Is our prayer to God? Is our prayer big enough? Is, is our prayer taking into consideration that God is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine? And from this passage, we learn that God is able to deliver us from even the most seemingly impossible situations and bring us into his marvelous kingdom and freedom. We're going to bow in prayer.